Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, Career Coach One and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. A key component of my right fit method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Rachel Brill, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Rachel and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They compete with themselves, raising the bar higher and higher. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wondering why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong, and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show, and after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Rachel Brill, Superstar on the Rise. Rachel is the Vice President of Development at Zoo Productions. In 2001, Rachel joined Zoo Productions as an intern and quickly showed her creativity which propelled her to Vice President of Development 
in 2009. In her current position, Rachel manages project development and production, both written and media, relevant to pitches, presentations, and pilots, which has included the Fox primetime game show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?, and TV Land's How'd You Get So Rich with Joan Rivers. In addition to her responsibilities in development, Rachel has played a key role on the production teams of Zoo's recent shows, including True TV's Speeders and Speeders Fight Back, Lifetime's Let the Good Times Roll, CMT's Bandits vs. Smokies, MTV's Tila Tequila Spring Break Fantasy Couple. Rachel is also developing the docu-series The Pelican Girls and a studio game show for NBC. As an invited speaker at the Association of Film Commissioners International Symposium in November, Rachel was part of a panel discussing nonfiction productions, the bread and butter of the industry. Rachel's passion for a career in television started early as she was growing up in Los Angeles. Then, as a college student at the University of Miami, Rachel worked as the student producer, director, and editor of UMIQ, a scholastic Jeopardy-like game show, where she garnered accolades including the Telly Award, a national award recognizing the best in non-commercial television, the Collegiate Broadcasters Incorporated Award, a national award recognizing the best in college television, and the Aegis Award, a national video and film production award recognizing outstanding work judged by peers. Rachel took a sabbatical, a semester off, to travel as the event planner for the Al Gore-Joe Lieberman presidential campaign in 2000, and at a later time worked on events for President William Jefferson Clinton just after he left the White House. During her junior year in college, Rachel seized the opportunity to intern for MTV's Summer Beach House, which laid the groundwork to a full-time position with Zoo Productions. Starting as a production assistant and quickly becoming executive assistant to partners Barry Posnick and John Stevens, she coordinated all aspects of business and personal life for two executive producers, including new project development, current network administration, casting, maintaining schedules, coordinating travel, expense reports, maintaining relationships with creative executives, agents, managers, and talent, assisting in corporate sponsorships for annual charity fundraiser, live event coordination, and shoot day logistics for various projects. As Rachel rose through the ranks at Zoo Productions, 
Her credits include, along the way, MTV's The Morning After, Oxygen's Girls Behaving Badly, and Kids Behaving Badly, CBS's Rob and Amber Get Married, History Channel's Where Did It Come From, Spike's Video Game Awards, and a private concert with rap star Snoop Dogg and the Pussycat Dolls. During the show, I will uncover Rachel's success strategies and future plans. Welcome, Rachel, to Win Without Competing. Hi, Arlene. Thanks for having me on tonight. It's an uh, absolute pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure as well. You grew up in Los Angeles. Where, whereabouts and what did your parents do? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in a little community called Woodland Hills. Um, my parents were both uh, working individuals. They worked for small companies. My father built his company, Royal Arms International, from the ground up, and um, it's a engineering and manufacturing company that deals with the field of bomb disposal. So he has clients that are police departments, sheriff's organizations, and international governments, you know, domestically and abroad. My mother um, was a stay-at-home mom until my brother and I were about six and seven years old, and then she went to become the vice president of a boutique architectural and design firm that um, designed tract homes out in the San Bernardino community and did everything from sales and marketing to interior design and administration, uh, which is uh, quite parallel to, you know, the path that I have taken in my professional life. Tell us more, Rachel, about the influence that your parents had on you and what they told you about yourself when you were young. Well, my mother likes to describe me as a very intently focused and organized baby. I used to organize my toys at a very young age um, and was very independent. She said that growing up I didn't necessarily have a lot of toys, but I knew how to entertain myself and keep myself busy. And she raised both my brother and I to be very, very independent individuals and didn't want what she calls (laughs) hanger-ons. She didn't want us to become those clingy children that just always need to have tons of friends or tons of toys or tons of anything around them. She wanted us to be self-sufficient. And um, I believe she she and my father instilled some um, great qualities and and, um, were fantastic role models for us starting very, very early on in our development. So you were impressed and happy with how she interacted with you in terms of encouraging you at an early age to be independent rather than to be dependent, which some parents try to encourage. Absolutely. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily be the person I am today without my parents' influence and and the rest of my family as well. I have a very small family, but we're very close-knit, and I grew up with my two aunts um, always around me. Um, you know, on Sundays we would have family outings and dinners and, and such, and um, they instilled great values in me and, and taught me to be independent. And um, I, I think it's, you know, it certainly served me well up until up until this point in my life. In terms of the kinds of things you talked about at home 
or the kinds of activities that you did as a family, given that both parents were working. I know that when we talked before the show, you had mentioned that the family always had dinner together, but not necessarily at the same time, and I commented to you that I think that that was interesting and probably helpful in terms of you developing yourself as a flexible person so that you're not rigid, you're a divergent thinker. Uh, absolutely. I, I have the personality that I need flexibility. I become very um, bored with monotony and things that are super structured. And I believe that that comes from my childhood because once once my mother started working full time um, around the time that, that my brother and I were in elementary school, she worked very long hours because she worked for a small independent firm and she wore multiple hats. And there were nights when she would pick us up from school and we would hang out at her office until 6 or 7 or 8 o'clock at night until she could get her work done. And my father as well, because he built his company from scratch, it was his passion and he knew that he had to get a lot done in you know very few hours in the day. And thankfully, he um, grew his business out of our home and was in the working out of the garage for the first couple of years. So he was always home, but yet working very long hours. So when we would have dinner, it may be at 6 o'clock one night, it may be at 7, 8, 9, 9.30 on another night. Um, and I believe that you know my ability to be flexible with everything I do certainly stems from that environment that, that I grew up in at an early age. It's interesting that you're not hostile at all because, you know, some kids, if things are not done, you know, routinely at the same time, they find it upsetting. If they have to wait for their parents, they don't like it. So your parents did something to prevent you from having a negative response. Do you know what that is? Um, I, I don't, actually, but routine to me is probably a little bit more upsetting than, than something that, that is not so routine. I mean, I just, I think when you uh, have a creative mind, you need things to constantly um, be new and be interesting. And I, again, I, I find when something is too structured or too um, monotonous, I get very, very bored and I want to move on to something else. I like the constant challenge of not knowing what's coming and having to find a solution to a problem because it's something that I've never been presented with in life before. What I think is interesting is that you have, uh, and still have, the right fit parents. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's terrific. Uh, going further, at school, what would you say was the influence of your teachers of your on your of your friends on you at all in terms of growing up well i am um, again at a at a young age i think i knew that i was destined for a creative field of some sort i remember writing a report and i believe it was 5th grade about what I wanted to become in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. And I wrote that I wanted to be a producer. I wanted to go to film school, and I wanted a backup plan um, to be an attorney and go to law school. And to this day, it's it's absolutely something that I must have set my sights and set my path um, at a young age and decided to uh, follow that. 
But my parents were, uh, they're both very, very creative individuals in their own regards. My father was an artist at one point and um, a jeweler before he got into the insurance industry and, and the, the industry that he's in now. And my mother is also creative, but in a, a much more tactile way. Um, and they weren't in the entertainment industry. The only exposure that I had to it was that I had quite a few friends growing up whose parents were in the industry. Some were lighting designers or gaffers. There were films, movies. One was called Beethoven that was shot at the uh, middle school in the neighborhood where I grew up. So there was always some sort of exposure to the entertainment industry through my friends' parents. And I think I just must have found it really, really fascinating and walked on, I remember walking onto the set um, of the film shooting at the school next to me one day and just thinking, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> I definitely want to do something. Um, and my parents encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do, um, you know, even if it wasn't necessarily going into the family business like my brother ended up pursuing um, or taking, you know, another path. Going further about the dream, uh, do you remember what exactly you said? Because that would be interesting to know. I mean, did you envision yourself as an actress? Because I know we talked about you did do some acting in school. I I didn't. I mean, I think once my once my mother knew that my brother and I both had um, dreams to be in entertainment in some respect. She enrolled us in John Robert Powers, which was an acting and modeling school that we would um, come to courses over in Beverly Hills um, every Saturday or Sunday. And I was in drama, um, I believe starting in about seventh and eighth grade, and I pursued that until ninth grade. But what I also found was I didn't like to be the center of attention. I'm not a very good actress, I'm not a good liar, and I can't memorize lines from a script to save my life. But I can, I, ha I do have a very vivid imagination, and I'm creative, and I could improv things on the fly. So I believe there was a point when I would never get cast in any of the big starring roles. Really, uh, the only roles that my drama teacher would give me were his background um, and we competed in uh, festivals, which were uh, acting competitions with other uh, Los Angeles school, schools. Um, and because I wasn't cast in any of the roles that were competing in the competition, the backup was to compete in the costume division. So I had to design a Shakespearean um, costume from Macbeth or one of, one of the plays. And at that point, I sort of realized, oh, if I'm not good enough to be an actress and they're going to put me in the costume contest, clearly my drama teacher is giving me some sort of a message. When I went um, into high school and in ninth grade decided to give drama one more shot, again, the same thing happened. I would never get any of the roles. And during the fall festival, there is an improv division for a group uh, from your class to compete in the improv competition where essentially the judges will throw out a topic at you and you and your teammates have to come up with a situation and make it really entertaining, make it really funny. And I did I did make the team there and I think it was just because of my vivid imagination and if you give me a scenario to come up with some sort of solution and talk about something on the fly, I could I could perform pretty well and we ended up taking either second or fourth place. Um, out of about 35 schools that, that we were competing against. 
So even though I did pretty well in the improv thing, I, I just had decided that acting wasn't my thing. It wasn't a passion of mine, but I did like the behind the scenes, calling the shots, creating, and you know, being the one who essentially organizes and brings it all together and not being center stage with all the um with all the the lights and cameras shining on me because I just thought I sort of crack when people put too much focus on me. How old were you when you realized that acting wasn't the right fit? Um it was definitely ninth grade and in ninth grade I think I was about 15. It's interesting that you were very mature about it from the perspective of not feeling bad, that acting wasn't right for you, that you were able to sort it out and match up what you were good at um, and accepted that. Right. And I, I believe that when you have good mentors around you, they're generally there to help guide you on the path that is the right fit or that is the best place for you. And I, I, I guess I was um, intuitive to uh, or, uh, understand that they were guiding me for my own good, <laughs> and I just sort of went with it. But um, I, I definitely had no intentions of pursuing it once I got to that point where I realized acting wasn't wasn't my thing. My brother decided to pursue it, um, but it just it wasn't up my alley. But on the other hand, that's not what he's doing today, correct? It is not. <laughs> yeah, so obviously he figured out, maybe later than you, that uh, it wasn't the right fit for him. Right, right. Why was the University of Miami the right fit school for you? The University of Miami had everything, and I mean everything that I was looking for when I um, decided to venture outside of California to choose a university. My mother was very instrumental in guiding me towards picking a university that was one out of Southern California so I didn't have to attend the same junior college or university with the rest of the people I went to high school with because it's um, it's the only way that you can sort of develop your own self and mature outside of moving away from home and hanging out or making new friends and and um, just broadening broadening your your outlook on life. So my mother was born and raised in um, central Florida in a little town called Winter Park. And my grandparents, when I was getting ready to go to school, were living in Fort Lauderdale at the time. The University of Miami was one of many schools that I looked at in the state of Florida. And I just fell in love with the campus on top of the fact that they had a great film program. They had a um, top-notch athletic department and um, law school and everything else that I was looking for. And at the time, i it's funny that I decided I didn't want to be an actress, but I still wanted to be in entertainment, and I had dreams to be a sports reporter, to stand on the sidelines and interview athletes and um, do all of that jazz <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, so well, I wanted a school that, that blended both the entertainment aspects and had a really good football and baseball program. Tell us, okay, let's go back a little bit here because you have quite an elaborate blueprint of the right fit. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, because you had mentioned law school, you mentioned entertainment, uh, now you're getting into sports. 
when did the sports um, <clears throat> passion evolve? How did that come about? Sports came about um, when I was in ninth grade. It was 1994, and the Northridge earthquake hit um, Southern California. I was attending El Camino Real High School in Woodland Hills at the time, and the school had suffered so much damage that it was forced to shut down due to asbestos and um, and it just not being physically safe for students to continue attending. So they closed the school down. I seized the opportunity to transfer to another school that was open and continue my school year because I decided I did not want to waste my summer waiting for the school to open to make up the class and the time that was lost due to the earthquake. So I, my brother and I went to Westlake, and that was about 20 minutes north of my house, and it was a wonderful, wonderful school that offered so many more programs that I, um, that I participated in that El Camino didn't offer. And because the school was so far away and my mother was wor- working a full-time job, my father was working a full-time job running his business, my mother didn't want to take two trips to Westlake to pick us up from school at two different times. My brother was on the baseball team at the point at the time. So she said, you're going to hang out up there with your brother until 6 o'clock. You can find a job. You can do something. But I'm only going to come pick you guys up once at 6 o'clock. There was a, um, a class called athletic training, which is essentially a division of sports medicine and kinesiology in high school that um, – taught you a bunch about sports medicine, and at the same time, you as the student would become a trainer to the baseball and the football teams, taping their ankles and holding the water bottles and running them out on the field and essentially taking care of the athletes. So I decided to do that. I became a um, a manager of, of the baseball team and got to travel with the baseball team, and it essentially filled up that four hours between the time that school let out and my brother was done with baseball practice so my mom could come pick us up, and I really enjoyed it. I loved the um, the sports medicine and the kinesiology and the medical side of it, and I got really into it, and that's how I decided to pursue that when I went to the University of Miami. And when I was applying to Miami, I applied to the film program, and at the same time, I also applied to be an, a student athletic trainer for um, the athletic department at Miami, and at the time, the baseball team was sort of down in the dumps. The football team was sanctioned, um, and they were, hadn't been performing well since their days in the 80s when they were a, a football powerhouse. Um, and and they accepted me, and they said, absolutely, we need young, eager student trainers um, come be a part of our program. At the same time, the film department accepted me. And it sort of, um, you know, spiraled from there. Let's go further. Um, I do want to compliment your mother. I mean, she seemed to know what to do to encourage you to think divergently. In other words, she let you figure out what to do with the time that you would have waiting for your brother. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very good that you you used it wisely I had to, and that was something that she had to remind me of the other night when we were talking, is that she she said she didn't want, her entire philosophy on how to raise children was that she wanted independent children who could make decisions for themselves and have that independent spirit, and she didn't want us to be lazy. Laziness is 
unacceptable in our household <laughs> entirely. So either I had to get a job or I had to do something, but yet they allowed us the flexibility to do whatever it was that we wanted to do and chase our passions, you know, where, wherever they, they took us. I mean, she really set the stage for you to be successful in your career by fostering that independence as you were growing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you go about laying the foundation for a television career when you were at the University of Miami? Um, It started by enrolling in the film school. Um, I was a little bit overly ambitious when I moved to Miami as a freshman and decided to involve myself as an athletic trainer with the um, athletic department. I was in film school, which as a freshman um, was sort of unheard of because you didn't really start film school until you were a sophomore. And at the same time, I was rushing a sorority and, you know, moving to an entirely new city by my own where I was 100% independent. And I quickly realized that I bit off way more than I could chew. Enrolling in sophomore-level film classes as a freshman uh, was not a good idea, but I think it's less about me taking on too much at too early of a a stage in my university life as much as it was I understood at that point that film was not the direction that I wanted to go. Broadcasting and television was more suited for my personality. And that's essentially because I just I believe that there's a very different personality um, required to enjoy and be passionate about the film industry as there are about people who are passionate about the broadcasting industry, because film is is a slower process um, where it could take you three years essentially to write and develop and shoot and edit and and release a film, whereas television is a much more immediate pace. And I'm I'm a personality that needs immediate gratification. I like things now. I like them to happen very quickly. And I don't like to sit around and wait for things to come or to happen. I um, In the film program, things were just, they took way too long to get done. And even sitting um, at my desk in my dorm one night having to physically use a, guillotine, a film guillotine to cut the film strip and then take these little tiny strips of clear tape to paste together the film in the sequence that you actually wanted it to appear in was just way too monotonous for me. And even though I'm a super detailed person, I just that wasn't creative enough for me. Well, that's and at that point I, I said like work. film. That's why. Yeah, film is just it's not my thing. And I transitioned sophomore year into the broadcasting program, which involved a whole lot more of the television production, working on news sets because we had a fully operational um, studio and two nights of weekly newscasts that students were responsible for writing, editing, producing, shooting, and overseeing. I think it's very interesting how aware you are of how you feel about things. You know very quickly. Not everyone is able to do that because I do a lot of career coaching Mm -hmm. and uh, it's very difficult for some people to connect to the things they like and the things they don't like. It's not uh, necessarily common 
for everyone to be able to do what you do. But you probably think that it is common. Am I right? I, well, I, I mean, I just I, I know what type of person I am, and I'm very in tune with who I am and what I like and what I don't like. Right. You know, I don't know if that was something that has been learned um, throughout my growth and development. I don't know if it's something that comes from my parents, but uh, I, I am acutely aware of what I like and what I don't like and what – I need to be doing and the structure or, you know, flexibility, whatever it is that I need, I know exactly how I need it done. Well, also, too, it sounds as if your parents know exactly what they like and what they don't like based on how you describe them. Yes, and they're very vocal about it, too. (laughs) Well, that's okay. That's all right. They're very much in touch with themselves. That's, Mm -hmm. That's very good because... That helps people um, throughout not just their professional life, but also their personal life. If you don't know what you like, it's very difficult to make decisions. If you know what you like, it's a hell of a lot easier. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) In 2000, you took a semester off from college to travel as the event planner for the Gore-Lieberman presidential campaign. Why did you want this job, and how did you pitch yourself to get to get it? Um, this is uh, something else that I I don't necessarily think that I had ever envisioned myself doing. But as a creative person, I love event planning. I love organizing. I love putting things together. Um, when I enrolled in the University of Miami, Miami in the communication. Um, field, they instructed us that you had to declare two majors because there is such a high failure rate when you're involved in the entertainment industry, whatever it is, if you decide to be a producer, a writer, um, an actress, what have you, they wanted you to have a secondary major to fall back on, and I declared that that was going to be political science. wasn't really interested in World War II or history or any of that, but political science um, and law really sort of um, I found absolutely fascinating. The 2000 campaign happened to, um, or the the Democratic National Convention happened to take place in Los Angeles at the Staples Center. Um, It was during the summer. I was home uh, in between semesters at school. My mother saw an ad on the television that said, we're looking for 3,000 volunteers and interns to help work on the DNCC at the Staples Center. And she brought it to my attention and said, you get your ass down there and you go apply for a job. <laughs> you know, you're not going to sit on the couch and watch TV all summer. You're going to do something, whether it's a job, an internship. I don't care if you get paid. Just go and do something. And because I needed um, internship credits for my second major, this just sort of seemed to make sense. And I went down there, and it was a funny story because they asked me why I wanted to intern uh, at the convention. And all I said was, well, because I want to be a sports reporter and, um, you know, I want to be in television and I think this is something fun that I could do. And most people would pitch themselves and um, give a whole whole background on why they love politics so much and how they've been following the campaign and how they're diehards and they want to work for the White House, blah, blah, blah. And I did none of that. But they must have seen that I was focused enough 
and driven that whatever task they would give me, I wouldn't complain and I would get it done and that's exactly what I did. So in interning for the summer uh, for the convention, I my supervisor took note of me and immediately once Al Gore was declared as the nominee and he was going on the road to start his uh, hardcore campaigning, they asked me to join the team. And because I had already paid for the semester, which was my junior year, I believe, um, to go back to the University of Miami, my mother and father said, yes, but no, you got to ask the school if they will actually you know, let you take a semester off to travel with a campaign. It was an absolutely fantastic opportunity. My professors and the deans at the University of Miami understood that it was a great opportunity, and they said, absolutely, we'll give you credit. You just need to write a report. And um, and that's sort of how I ended up in the position I did, traveling with the campaign for a couple of months and being, you know, on the um, on the ground in multiple cities for a lot of hard, long, sleepless nights, but it was one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever had. And in terms of pitching myself, I I think there's been multiple opportunities in my life where I pitch myself with um, the focus and sort of a goal that doesn't necessarily fit what the employer or the supervisor is looking for, but there's something that they must see in me that makes me a right fit even though I don't necessarily fall into there. Um, well, let me ask you this question. You do that purposely? No, not purposely at all. I'm just I'm, I'm up front and honest. honest about. Yeah, yeah, you're just honest I'm very about straightforward. you are. Yes, just mm-hmm. honest, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious why. But still in all, they're looking at your attributes, your uh your character, your values, your interpersonal skills, they're looking at other things that they're seeking. Exactly. Yeah, and that apparently is the match for them. So that right. is the right fit, otherwise they wouldn't uh, right. ask you to join them. Um, going further, when President Clinton left the White House, you worked on events for him. How did this come about? I did. I met a um, a dear friend named Andy uh, during my time uh, working on the Gore Lieberman campaign, and he was very close with um, with the Clinton aides in the White House. And because I was living in South Florida, and and President Clinton decided to spend his first couple of weeks out of office um, fundraising and doing various events in South Florida, my dear friend Andy asked me to help him arrange and organize and do the advance, which is what it's called in that industry, um, to do all the event planning for his events. So there were, you know, uh, events at uh, private um, people's homes where we did fundraisers, we did um, speeches and other interesting things, a lot of fundraising events at restaurants and, and private um, residences, and there's one at Mar-a-Lago, which is Trump's place in Palm Beach, and uh, it was just really, it's all about relationships and networking and selling yourself and your abilities to get the job done, and I believe that everybody that I've come across in my professional career has seen that drive and that passion and creativity 
and um, determination to do the job and push myself to do it as good as I can. I don't I don't need other people to push me. I compete with myself, and that's what I think um, other people see in me. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about competing with yourself later on in the program. What did you learn from working with uh, Clinton and working with uh, Gore and Lieberman? What what impact did it have on you? I the the one thing that I noticed from anybody who I believe is a good role model and um, is successful in their professional endeavors is the passion and um, the the tireless work ethic that they all have. I mean, somebody, I think it was probably an NFL coach that I was reading about in some magazine who said that he doesn't sleep anything but three three hours or four hours a night because you can't sleep your life away if you hope to be successful. And I don't think it's so much about not getting the sleep necessary to refuel your body as much as it is these people are passionate about what they do, and it's exciting. And if you're that excited about what you do, it's not really work. It's it's more entertainment. And and you, if you have that passion and you have that drive to stick with something and and be a, in, acutely focused on your goal, I think you'll accomplish it if you have the skills um, to get there. And and that's what I saw. In um, Al Gore, it's what I saw in President Clinton, on top of him being the most charismatic person I think I've ever met in my life, um, which also gets you pretty far. <laughs> well, I but think, Yeah, I heard him speak in Los Angeles at the Music Center uh, a couple of years ago. The audience was just mesmerized. When he stopped speaking, everyone stood up and I think felt disappointed that the presentation was over. It was amazing. You can't help but be so focused on what he's saying because he is brilliant, he's intelligent, he's a great storyteller, um, and he just sort of, you know, uh, makes you so interested in what he has to say, whether it's, you know, a a stupid story or telling something about his mother or father that, um, you know, is sort of heartwarming. He's he's very charismatic and very, very bright. How did you become an intern on MTV Summer Beach House? I um the University of Miami had a job placement program in the School of Communication and when Miami or when uh, MTV decided to go down to Key West to um shoot the beach house all summer long, they put out a notice to the communication department and said, we're looking for interns, send resumes, apply. We're going to select 20 um, people to come down and intern for us for the entire summer. So I put in an application, and I don't know what it was at that point that they decided I I didn't make the cut, but I remember receiving a call saying, I'm sorry, we've already selected our 20 interns for the summer. Apply again next year or something like that. Thank Thank you for your interest. About two days later, I got a call, and they said, somebody dropped out. We want you to join um, the intern class. 
I at that point had already bought my ticket to go home to Los Angeles for the summer. So I was really, really excited, but at the same time I was like, oh, my God, I need to go home to L.A. first and then fly back to Miami, then pack up all my stuff in my apartment and move down to Key West for the summer. And, of course, I I jumped at the opportunity because I knew that it was going to be something where I got firsthand um, work experience and really in entertainment it's all about networking and getting that experience firsthand. You can't learn anything from a book or be taught enough to sort of propel you into this industry. You really need that on-the-job experience. And um, I, my whole goal that entire summer was to learn as much as I could from as many different departments so I could hopefully meet enough individuals, executives, that could potentially give me a job when I ultimately graduated a year after that summer. And that worked because you met Barry Posnick and, <laughs> and did, John yes. Stevens. So tell us about that, Rachel. Well, I the the MTV Summer Beach House was in Key West, and it was a beautiful, beautiful environment. But again, my whole focus was to work as hard as I could and learn from as many people as possible. They put you on rotations for all of the different um, all of the different uh, genres of of uh, production, whether it be casting or wardrobe or production management or actually on um, a production team with executive producers working on an individual show. It wasn't until the very last week of the summer internship that I ended up on a rotation with Barry Posnick and John Stevens, and they were producing a talk show with a young pop star named Mandy Moore who had just launched her first album and um, had a talk show that was uh, female-driven about fashion and boys and dating and performances and had guests and such. And it was there that I immediately, my entire summer had turned around because I wasn't necessarily enjoying myself up to that point because I hadn't had the opportunity to work on an actual show once I got on this rotation to work on the Mandy Moore show, I was in heaven. I mean, it was like I knew exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I just happened to really gel with John Stevens, one of the partners who I work for still. And he saw in me that, again, I was focused and I was driven. And even though I was a girl, I was going to get my hands dirty and pack boxes and carry heavy things and do what it took to get the job done and not complain. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily the one who wanted to go out and party because we were in Key West and get drunk with the rest of the interns. I wanted to work and I wanted to learn. And the minute that I graduated from college and moved back home to Los Angeles, the timing worked out perfectly. John Stevens gave me a call and said we had a show pickup for Oxygen's Girls Behaving Badly. We'd like to bring you on as a production assistant. And it went from there. You were blessed, so to speak. I I was blessed. I I, I definitely think that um, some of the things in my life have been um, just about timing. And I've been very fortunate and very lucky, but I also think that I have certainly worked um, and earned everything that I've been given because I I wasn't necessarily handed anything on a silver platter. I was given the um, wherewithal and the encouragement to do everything that I wanted to do 
but I, I certainly think that I've I've worked for everything and proven myself. True. But what I meant about being blessed, so to speak, is that you were very fortunate to have met John Stevens when very, you were very fortunate as an yes. intern. I mean, you yes. may not, you know, I mean, your life would have been different uh, today. You wouldn't be with Zoo Productions, and you wouldn't be a VP of development. No, so, I certainly wouldn't be because right, I. Right, that's right. <laughs> when he called me, there's there's sort of a funny story there because when when John called me on my cell phone to offer me the position as as the production assistant, I had just been turned down by the NBC Page program in New York City. Um, for some reason, I did not meet their qualifications to become a page. And I was devastated. I was sitting in Bryant Park crying hysterically, saying, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> I've just been turned down by NBC, and I desperately wanted to work for them because, I mean, it's like it's every college graduate's dream is to go and work for a network. Um, but fortunately, John called me at the right time, and it was the right fit because I do believe to this day that I wouldn't necessarily be happy in a big corporate environment like that. I mean, everything that I've known has been my parents working for small independent companies, and that's you know where I am today. Even though our company continues to grow at a rapid pace, we're still, you know, we we're we're from a small, rooted family business. If you, if you consider my bosses who are best friends, family. Well, apparently you do, right? In other mm-hmm. words, you feel as if. You're working in a family environment. I know from talking with you prior to the show, that's how you feel, and that's a wonderful feeling. It is, and I, and I really believe that if you treat your employees like family, yes, it is a business, and yes, there is a lot that needs to get done in the day, but your employees will work that much harder for you if you treat them like family and you um, allow them to feel that they're just as much of a part of it as, you know, the big men upstairs running the company. And that's exactly the way they run their business. Your escalation continued at Zoo Productions rapidly. Mm-hmm. Did you visualize the step-by-step promotions and set the stage for them? You, In other words, you, you've clearly articulated that your highly focused, mm-hmm. hardworking, persevering. Did you have in your mind specific goals that you were seeing going up the spectrum, so to speak? I absolutely um, believe that I set goals for myself and that I've envisioned my progression up the corporate ladder, if you will. Um, I, I can't personally say that I knew that I would be in this exact position where I am now working um, and running a development department, but it's certainly, I have always had lofty ambitions, and I want to be running a company one day, so yes, I mean, I I, I feel that I'm focused and, and driven enough that I know I will progress and continue to progress and continue to learn and be challenged. Um, and work as hard as possible to continue to move up the ladder. I did want to step back a bit and talk about what I think was a key position early on that helped you move up from 
a post-production producer, a segment producer, uh, producer, coordinating producer, and supervisory, supervising mm-hmm. pr- producer. Mm-hmm. When they promoted you from production assistant to executive assistant, I laid out all your responsibilities mm-hmm. in the show description, and I did that purposely. I want to find out from you how that array of responsibilities taught you about the business so that you naturally started moving up. I I do believe, and and when young college graduates come into my office to interview for an internship or a production assistant position, a lot of them are confused and sort of conflicted about what path they want to choose. They really haven't decided where they're going to go. I do believe it started back when I was in college. The fact that I had such an array in diversification of internships, I was exposed to a lot at a young age, and I understood it all. And I understood that I wanted to be more on the executive side of things. And the best way to learn that is to be an executive assistant. When you're working for two executive producers, you're exposed to everything from the creative side to the business management side and everything in between. And just as my parents fostered me at a young age to pursue whatever it was but just pursue something – Both John and Barry did the same thing with me. They gave me that exposure and let me learn. And even sitting, you know, in an office where I could hear every single conversation that they were having, I absorbed it all. And that's really the only way that you can learn. If you're a production assistant out on set and all you ever know is, you know, here's the script and here's what we're shooting, here's how to operate a camera, you're not going to have that same level of exposure as you are working for two executive producers, and they, I, I'm, I'm very grateful, and um, uh, very grateful that they allowed me the opportunity to be exposed to everything, and that they gave me the foundation for everything I know today, and um, again, that they gave me the opportunity to, to take on different challenges and different responsibilities in an array of everything that you need to um, run a production, run a production company, and keep Tell it all going. Tell us a bit about uh, Barry Posnick and John Stevens, what their backgrounds were and why they work well together. They are like brothers. They're best friends. They, um, they've known each other for about 15 years now. Barry comes from an extremely creative background. His um, grandparents ran vaudeville theaters in New York City. His mother was a copywriter in New York who um, also works with us today, which is amazing. She's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, Barry had creativity from the minute that he was born. His mother tells me stories how he, at the age of 15, he grew up in, um, in Long Island, would take one of those big Betamax cameras on his shoulder, go into New York City, hang outside the clubs at age 15, and wait for celebrities to come in or out so he could interview them. So he was essentially like the TMZ paparazzi before TMZ existed, which is hilarious because you flash forward 25 years and he's still (laughs) in entertainment and one of the most creative people that I've ever come across in my life. Um, and he knew at a very young age that this is what he wanted to do. He 
was producing Joan Rivers' talk show at the age of 23. He sold his first television show at the age of 28 and um, launched Zoo Productions back in 1994. And John Stevens um, partnered with him in 96, and it's just been you know one of those match made in heaven. John also is super creative, but from an entirely different background. He was born and raised in um, Texas by way of Kansas, or Kansas by way of Texas, and um, was one of those class clowns that was always entertaining everybody. Wanted to be a stand-up comedian, which is why um, it's so entertaining to watch both John and Barry in pitch meetings or just in general when we're sitting around the office and how they spar back and forth with each other and really keep the entire staff laughing. We work so hard, but it's fun to have two bosses who keep it light and keep it fun and keep it entertaining. John took his um, sort of stand-up comedy creativity and became a writer uh, for the David Letterman show and Tom Snyder, and then parlayed that into an overall deal with Telepictures where he met Barry and they ultimately teamed up for Zoo Productions. Uh, and then I met them, you know, I think six years after they partnered up. But um, they they have uh, the most perfect right fit for um, for personalities in terms of working as executives together. They have desks that sit back to back, so they're always looking at each other and always constantly throwing ideas off of each other. And just their dynamic works really, really well. And I'm fortunate to sort of fit into that professional dynamic with them as well. Um, it's, you know, it, it's interesting because you hear very few stories of people who work for the same employer for as long as I have, but it just works. It, it really works. We have three very, very different personalities, but for some reason it, it seems to um, be the right fit. I think it's also um, important that when you were working initially as their executive assistant, what you learned from watching them work off of each other, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, you observed all of that. Uh, absolutely. And I do, uh, again, I learned everything more or less from them. And without being exposed to that, I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to go about my job on a daily basis the way I do. But it is that dynamic that, you know, sort of like President Clinton is so charismatic. Both John and Barry are as well. And it's that energy that you sense from them that is, um, it's contagious. And I believe that everybody that works for us senses that. And you can't have anything but the utmost respect for, um, for the enthusiasm and the passion. In 2005, you became the Director of Development, and in 2008, the Vice President of Development. As the responsibilities increase, so does the workload. You're mm-hmm. like a juggler. Yeah. How do you structure your time so that you manage the process without dropping a ball? That is a that's a loaded question, but at the same point uh, or same time, I have come up with a method that works for me um, to get things done in an efficient manner. And 
when you work in a creative environment and a creative industry like I do, things change at the drop of a hat. And you have to have that flexibility to be able to run with it and not let it shake you up and not let it wind you up so tightly that you can't continue to stay focused on the goal at hand, whether it's just writing an email or getting an entire pitch presentation put together. And what I've found that works best is that because things happen in a day and they change so frequently, you have to allot and allow yourself time the day before to get all the big creative things done so you have that flexibility when something, you know, when there's a fire that you need to all of a sudden deal with and manage and then put out, the time that that's going to take from your day is going to be the time it takes away from getting a creative project that takes intense focus to get done, to get written, to get um, produced. So I, my philosophy is that you never leave anything until the last minute. You get it done the night before. Because if you walk out that door on Monday night and you have a presentation at 5 o'clock on Tuesday, what happens on Tuesday morning if you didn't finish the presentation on Monday night and then all of a sudden there's 15 other pressing things that need to get done and take that time out of your day? Then you're left stressed out. You can't get your presentation done for 5 o'clock. And it's just it's something that um, comes with the territory we television is a very immediate rapid paced environment and you need to structure your day and structure your time so you can allow the flexibility to answer those questions and address you know the the pressing issues that happen whenever they happen because when things when things uh, you know when there's a fire that you need to put out you can't put it off for a couple hours it needs to be done right now about how many hours a day would you say you work? Um, I now and be honest. Oh no, I can answer that. It's only you and me. Just be yeah. honest, Rachel. Um, I probably would say I work a majority of my waking hours. I have a BlackBerry that, um, unfortunately, I am obsessed with, and it's hard to put it down because I. I know that this is a job, but for me it's more of a career and it's more of a lifestyle. And because it's a lifestyle, I can't just put it down. It's not a nine-to-five. You don't clock in and you don't clock out. You're constantly thinking about it. So when there are emails that come in at 10 o'clock at night or at 6 o'clock in the morning, it's just my personality that I want to read them, I want to answer them, and I want to, I want to keep the creativity flowing. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily put any specific number of hours a day because I'm always working, but I enjoy always working. It's it's just it's the Is right fit for my personality. Sit next to you on the pillow, Rachel? <laughs> it, no, it doesn't sit next to me on the pillow. It is um, in my bedroom plugged in when, when I'm sleeping. You're ready. So but. if you wake up in the middle of the night, you check your BlackBerry in case you might have a production emergency. Um, not Well, I mean, I can certainly step away from it when I have to. I'm going on vacation next week for my best friend's wedding, and I'm going to put it down and not look at it once. But, again, when when you're so enthusiastic and passionate about what you do, it's not – a job that you can step away from just because, you know, it's 6 o'clock at night and everybody's at home with their families. Well, that's why I said that you were soaked in passion mm -hmm. when I started the show. Yes, I am. <laughs> Going further, what would your staff say about you? 
Um, I would say that um, they respect me, and again, my enthusiasm and passion, um, and uh, you know, perfectionism. I think is why people respect me. They know that if they assign me a job or if I'm put to task on something, it's going to get done and I'm going to, again, push myself to the best of my ability and I'm not going to quit until it is done. And I think when you have people working under you, if you're that example or you put out that example for them, they can't have anything but respect. But I I do think that some people think I'm a little bit intense because I'm so focused and I don't necessarily like to be distracted if I'm focused on something. But again, because distraction is so much of my day, I um, structure my day so that I can get the things that I need to be focused on done later in the day or earlier in the morning before the day is sort of um, in progress and, and things move very quickly. If you had to pick one show that you developed as setting the standard from your perspective because you're a perfectionist, Mm -hmm. which show would that be and why? Um, Because so much of what I do is in development, which is in the preliminary um, early stages before a show actually goes into production and ends up on air, um, I'm involved on the front end. Um, before things sort of really start to take shape. But with everything that I've worked on, I would definitely say that we as a company have to be most proud of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Because uh, we certainly didn't um, predict or anticipate that it would become such an international success as it did. Um, But again, when you want to strive for your best and most you know put your most creative ideas out there that's certainly one that that we need to be proud of because it's you know in 60 or 80 countries it's an international sensation it's board games it's textbooks it's i mean it it's so much more than a television show it's really a brand and um that's been very exciting to sort of watch where that show um, has gone and how far it, it's gotten, really. And it's, you know, what became the um, conduit for the ultimate acquisition of our company by All3 Media last year. Because when we became more of a, a global presence, other production companies and um, entities started to take notice. And that's exciting for somebody to recognize your company and that, and that the executives within um, have something to share with the rest of the world and, and that they have more to offer. How long has the show been running? Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? We pitched back um, Christmas time in 2006, actually right before Thanksgiving in 2006. Um, and within six weeks, we were in production and launched uh, the beginning of 2007 right after American Idol which was our lead-in. So it was a very quick um, go out and pitch it. It's in production and on air, which is, um, you know, something that we like to do. We're we're known to work around the clock if we're going to be given an opportunity as, as instrumental as, as taking the lead-in to American Idol, which you really can't um, get much better than that. And Fox, you know, is very, um, very, 
wonderful for giving us that opportunity and allowing us the best possible way to launch the new show. And it worked. It worked um, It worked really well because Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader not only has the primetime version, but we just shot 167 episodes of the syndicated half-hour version, which started um, airing about a month ago. Sounds like we're going to have this show for a long time. <laughs> yes. And if you don't see backpacks and textbooks and pencils and board games and um, <laughs> puzzles and such with, with Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, then you can certainly get your dose of it on, on television. <laughs> when we spoke prior to the show, I asked you whether you compete with yourself or against others. Mm-hmm. You echoed what Warren Buffett, the richest man in the world, says, <laughs> I can't play the other guy's game. How did you become Wendy Buffett? Uh, I don't know, and I found that absolutely fascinating that, that I have the same thought process and mentality that he does because that's quite a, quite a huge compliment. But I just I understood or I realized a couple of years ago that I can't control anybody else. I can only control myself my own output, my own creativity, my own ability, and I can continue to compete with myself and push myself for perfectionism. Is anything in life going to be perfect? No, of course not, but I can always continue to push myself to get to that point, whereas you can't force other people to do the same things that you do or have the same perfectionist mentality. And I don't need to waste my time or stress out about somebody else not living up to my standards. I can force myself to live up to my own standards, and that's been um, the way I've gone through life, at least for the last couple of years. I just now sort of understand that that's the process by um, by which I live my life. Well, and obviously it's been very successful, as it has been for Warren Buffett. Yes. <laughs> well, no, because I, as a child, started to do that naturally um, mm-hmm. from my father's teaching. So uh, I think that you lead a very different life if you win without competing. Yes, absolutely. Your personal life. You took a course from the Cordon Bleu Culinary Institute. Mm-hmm. When did you develop your passion for gourmet cooking? I think I'm just a naturally creative individual. I enjoy anything that is creating something from scratch. I arrange floral arrangements. I make invitations and stationery from scratch. I like cooking recipes from scratch and sort of throwing things together. Um, and when I was presented with an opportunity to take that Cordon Bleu class, I jumped at the chance because for me it's a constant um, way to educate yourself and continue to learn and continue to challenge yourself and that's again the way by which I live my life I like to challenge myself and I like to strive for perfection and continue anything in the um, anything in the creative world somebody told me once that I'm a very tactilely creative individual because I like using my hands I love arts and crafts I love all that stuff and I'm on top of that have the you know creative ability um, to translate programs into entertaining television and put productions together, and it's just something that I will do. I will go sleepless nights if I have to to get a creative project completed. 
because I enjoy it so much. I mean, I go to the flower mart with my mom at 4 o'clock in the morning to buy flowers so we can make arrangements um, for a party that we're throwing. And it's just, it's fun. Some people think it's crazy, but to me it's it's fun and it's what I'm passionate about. Um, I think that... Uh Posnick and, and Stevens were not aware that they hired Martha Stewart. What do you think? <laughs> but they will now know if they listen yes. to this broadcast. <laughs> no, I don't think. I mean, they, they know that I love all this stuff. But at the time, no, I don't think that they <laughs> had anticipated they would be hiring a little Martha Stewart. Come, <laughs> come Wendy Buffett, I guess. <laughs> That's right. What a combo we have, yeah. right? <laughs> Well, Rachel, I'm expecting bigger and bigger things for you. Um, You are a win-without-competing woman. You are soaked in passion. You know your core identity. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher. You understand right fits. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You have mastered the art of the pitch in a very unusual way. (laughs) You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. Please come back soon. Thank you, Arlene. It was really a pleasure. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And click on the date of the show description that interests you to connect to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest listening to Ann Edwards, Celebrity Biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, Sherilyn Kenyon, New York Times bestselling author and queen of the vampire novel, according to Publishers Weekly, Suzanne DeLaurentis, award-winning filmmaker and head, Suzanne DeLaurentis Productions, Jan Constantine, General Counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright case against Google. Next show. Please join me again on Wednesday, November 18th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be singer-songwriter Janelle Rapp, who, according to the International Music Connection magazine, is one of the top 50 iconoclasts of the music business. Also, too, do watch for Janelle's TV show, which is a reality show entitled Finding Gina. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310 441 310-441-5305 to learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, When Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com and for search services, barrowglobal.com. To learn about my in-person Package to Pitch seminars on the west side of Los Angeles beginning the week of November 9th, 
call 310-441-5305 or email drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. Remember this trigger, trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.